All right, welcome to Element. If you are new, the place that breaks your resolutions. Um, if you are uh, if you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes. They're only half sheets today. Again, trying to make it nicer for you the week before Christmas. Actually, it made it easier for me the week before Christmas. But uh, you grab one of these. There's some uh, questions on the back to go a little bit deeper. A place on the front to take notes as well as a place for all of your notes if you want to vigorously write down things because it's so amazing. Or not. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on e- Alive and then Events. And Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, and all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We'll get started. This is Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, and it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who live and walk in your goodness. That we would understand the adoption and the family and the hope that we are called into. And that we would honor you in turn how we live out our days, especially when it comes to this time of year and Christmas. That we would be a people who lift you up so the world would know the goodness of you coming in to rescue and save us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so today is our last true Sunday morning message of 2016. Uh, I write, when I wrote this message, it was almost a year ago, and I had no idea who was even going to win the primaries in the election. I think Trump is winning the GOP and Hillary is still winning the, the Dems, but I didn't, didn't even know. I was actually praying about what Element would do. I wrote this year, which meant last year and where we came to, so... I don't know, hopefully you guys have grown a little bit deeper and you've come to know Jesus better and you love him better and you're reaching out to your neighbors better and all of that. Uh, the next message you will hear from me, however that saying goes, if the sun comes up and the creeks don't rise. My mom's from Missouri, so that you know you hear that kind of stuff. Uh, the next one you'll hear will be Christmas Eve. Uh, again, those three services on Christmas Eve, there is no services on Christmas Day because I will be sleeping. Because we're going to be up really late on Christmas Eve. And again, if you want to go to church on Christmas Day, come to the 11 o'clock Christmas Eve, you will get out on Christmas Day, and then you feel like you did your duty. Also, if you do want to do, like Sarah said, questions with your families, what I did is this three-part blog, uh, and it started last week, it continues this Tuesday and then on Christmas Day. And what it is, it's a, it's a sermon I took that Martin Luther preached on Christmas Day, so he was more holy than we are, because he went to church on Christmas Day, uh, in 1521, and I, and I broke it up a little bit, and I broke it into three separate blogs. So if you really want to, that's there, as well as some questions that kind of go along with it with your families if you, if you guys want to do it. So today we're going to kind of end this shorter series called What in the World? What in the World is just some things that I read through in the scriptures and sometimes scratch my head and like, why in the world is that actually there? We're going to do part two of this after Easter next year, where we're going to answer all the questions that you guys asked. I have more questions than I have weeks to do those in, so I'm going to start doing some blogs as well that will answer some of the ones that are easier to answer, a little bit shorter. That'll be good. Uh, if And like I keep saying, if you write a question today, you can grab one of those 3x5 cards or scan this right here with the QR reader out of your smartphone if you have a question. And if it's better than one of the ones I have, I will bump somebody off the list for you. But no one will know except for me and for you. So, 
There you go. Merry Christmas. Hopefully they'll be fun. Uh, I thought we'd end the Christmas with a Christmas message of sorts, and really it's more just of sorts. We're going to talk about the birth of Jesus, but more of a question people ask in the birth of Jesus. Now, as Christians, we sing songs about the virgin birth and Jesus being born of a virgin and, and things like that. Th- this comes from a very Hebrew mindset, that the sins of the father are passed down to the children, so Jesus was born without an earthly father. He was given by the Holy Spirit to this lady named Mary so he could be the perfect Lamb of God to save us all. And yet, the very first gospel account by a guy named Matthew, he has a genealogy. And Matthew will trace the genealogy of Jesus' adopted father, Joseph. Why would he do that? Uh, He'll trace us all the way back to Abraham, but why does he trace this guy? If you look in the Gospel of Luke, Luke will trace a genealogy from Mary, Jesus' mom. But Matthew traces Joseph, and if Joseph was only the adoptive father, why would he do that? That's what we're going to look at. Now, I keep saying, when we read through the Bible, you have to look at it and interpret it in context of literary style, of culture, of history. So when you look at genealogies during this time, it wasn't wrong to break them out in male or female. That was okay, but you could really only have a female genealogy if somehow she was connected to a man of some sort. So it it was very cultural. You couldn't even have a conversation with a woman in Near East culture at this time without a man actually being present. And so when you look at Mary's genealogy, if you ever do, in the book of Luke, it's only there because it is able to be connected to Joseph, who became her husband. Now, Mary and Joseph, Mary and Matthew and Luke both talk about Joseph as being Jesus' adoptive father. And Matthew will say it like this. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. This makes sure you know that Joseph wasn't Jesus' real father. Luke says it like this in Luke 3.23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. So you have this supposedly thing that's in there, that's significant in Mary's genealogy. Because what you understand there is that even in that, he's telling you that Joseph is not the real father of Joseph by, or of Jesus biologically, making sure that Joseph wasn't the dad. Now open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to walk through this. Why does Matthew follow Joseph then? Why does he do this thing? Because you'll start with Abraham, which is the, the father and the patriarch of the just Jewish people. And then it goes to David, who is the king of Judah, who God gave a promise to that one of your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel forever. And why, why does it follow this guy? Because what happens is Jesus is going to be adopted into Joseph's family line. A lot of times today, people who are adopted, they think about adoption, think that people who are adopted aren't really wanted. They're second-class citizens. They're not true children. What it shows you is that Jesus is adopted into this family line, and he has all the rights of a firstborn son. He is in this family as if he was born into Joseph. And this is what it's telling you, that even when we are adopted as God's kids, Jesus himself was adopted into Joseph's family. We can have great joy in that because we're not second class. We are, by all rights and privileges, children of God when we believe in Jesus Christ. And at times, it can be kind of confusing and make you go, what in the world? So I'm going to walk through this genealogy with you. It is long. I'm going to feel like you're reading the phone book. But we're going to figure this out. Matthew 1, uh, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Apparently his dad liked pickup trucks. 
and Ram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. His dad liked to fish. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So that gets you to King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham. I know you're just riveted right now. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and I love that Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. So this takes you to the deportation of Babylon. Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Their names got weirder after Babylon, apparently. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Why is Zerubbabel easier to say than Shealtiel? I don't know. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ, and they all lived in the house at Jackbelt. Verse 17, so all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And again, I know you're thinking this is the most boring thing in the world unless you do like reading the phone book for fun. By me reading this, though, there are several things that I think a lot of us miss because of the culture. So I'm going to talk through this and draw it together. I'm going to give you four little short stories in here to show you what's going on. The most striking thing an early reader or hearer of this would notice is the placement in this male genealogy. Usually you would only follow the men. But it's not just the women that are in there, it's the, it's the type of women that are actually in there, who these women were. So, let's see if we can walk through this and recognize any of these. Matthew 1, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So, Tamar. Is Tamar a good woman or a bad woman? It depends. It depends on how you look at it, okay? What you notice at the start of Matthew's genealogy is this is going to read like a bad episode of Jerry Springer. That's what you're going to kind of get in this. You think your life is messed up? How could God ever redeem you? How could God love you? Well, be astounded at God's people, and not just God's people, those he chose to be part of his actual family. So it works like this. Judah had chosen this woman named Tamar for his wife, Ur. Ur is a very appropriate name for this kid because he's a big error. Okay, Ur was so evil that God killed him. Now imagine that as an obituary. So evil, God killed him. The end. That's not a good uh, obituary. Judah's dad then ordered Ur's brother Onan to replace his brother and impregnate Tamar. Now, I'm going to explain this custom because you might be offended by this. There are some, some biblical scholars who are completely disgusted by this concept. But in this day and age, if a woman was married and her husband died and she had no children, she would be destitute because she couldn't get married again. She'd mostly resort to prostitution. And so the Hebrews came along and they said, we will have a brother marry this woman, impregnate her, and have that child be in the name of the original husband. So this child grows up and that family name goes on. It was a way to make sure the woman was actually taken care of and not just left out to 
dry, so to speak. Okay, uh, and I think I don't think our culture can judge in this at all because in our culture, the average kid loses their virginity at 16. The average girl now will get married at 25. The average man at 27. So you have 10 years of sex before marriage in there. Uh, women today will carry mason guns to get to their car. So our culture does not really value the safety of women that much. I think in this, they're really trying to value them, though it is odd to us and our culture today. So Judah says, God killed your brother. Go take care of your sister-in-law. Onan is completely happy to go and repeatedly sleep with Tamar, but he refused to impregnate her or marry her. He probably didn't want to share his inheritance with some kid. And so she, Tamar, is forced to live kind of as a widow while she's got to have sex with this guy. So what does God do? God kills Onan too. Merry Christmas. Don't make God mad. (laughs) There you go. God says, you're not going to stop sinning. I'm going to take you out. Boom, there it is. And there are some scary things in the Bible. I get that. You know why they're there? To scare you. (laughs) Not to believing, but to examination of our own lives. So we look at it and say, well, God killed Onan and he was evil. Oh, no, I'm evil too. Ah, what do I do? Trust in Jesus. There you go. There you go. So what happens is, he's supposed to now, Judah's supposed to give his next son, his name is Sheila, oh, oh, Sheila, to Tamar. He's supposed to do that, but, but he's a little scared about this. He, do, he doesn't really know, you know, what, what to do. And, and so as he does this, he's going he's gonna to say, hey, now, Tamar, I want you to go live at your father's house until, oh, Sheila is old enough to marry you. But he's, but he's still really afraid about this, because his other two kids had died after they had gotten together with her. I don't think it's her fault. I think Judah's actually a bad dad. It's kind of like some dude who's been married like four or five times, and every time he's blaming the woman, oh, it's her fault, oh, it's her. Sometimes four or five times, it's probably you, all right? It's not necessarily them, you. Okay, get it together. So so she was too young to marry. She goes home to live with her dad, but that doesn't really free her. She goes back to live with her father, but it's really like a prison sentence because she can't, do, even if some guy showed up and was in love with her, she couldn't marry this guy. She now has to wait for Oshila, so it's like a like a prison sentence. Now, Tamar waits years. Eventually, Oshila grows up old enough, but he never is given to Tamar. And eventually what happens is Judah's wife dies. And after Judah's wife dies, he goes to this mourning period. After the mourning period is over, Judah's friend, whose name is Hurrah, which is really kind of funny because if you have a friend named Hurrah, you probably shouldn't be friends with him because he's like, hey, your mourning time's over. Let's go down to the city over here. We'll, it's like Mardi Gras. We'll pick up some prostitutes. It'll be great. Woo! And Judah's like, okay. So they start going down to the city. As they start going to the city, Tamar gets wind of this. She finds out what Judah's doing. So she dresses up like a prostitute on the side of the road, just like the movies, right? And she, she, she covers her face so you can't tell who it is. He goes in and he sleeps with her as a prostitute. So next thing you know is she gets pregnant with twin boys. It's like, I'm telling you, it's like Jerry Springer, man. So, so she's got these twin boys and eventually you can't hide that, right? Okay. That's how it works. So you can't hide that. And so he, uh, Judah finds out Tamar's pregnant. You've been promiscuous. And he sends her to go get killed. On the way to get killed, she goes, you can't kill me. You had sex with me. These are your boys. You paid for me. He's like, see, sweeps weeks. Right? It's like, what? What you got to see is this is really the whole changing point in Judah's life. He changes completely after this. But Judah, Tamar, and one of these boys are in Jesus' family line. They're part of his family. Matthew 1, 4, and 5. And Ram the father of Minadab, and Minadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon, Salmon, like a fish. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now, Rahab, good or a bad lady? 
Ah, depends, right? Depends how you look at it, right? So, so her name means pride, insolence, and savagery. And so she was a Canaanite. This would be like how a lot of people view ISIS today. That's kind of who she was. Her people were the great enemy of God and his people. You have Moses. He leads his people out of slavery in Egypt. Because of Israel's sin, they wander in the desert for 40 years. After that 40 years, Moses dies. And then you have Joshua. Takes his people into the promised land. One of the first cities they get to is a place called Jericho. At Jericho, they're trying to find a way to take this city. And so the Israelites send spies to go spy on this city. The first place the spies go is a city right outside of Jericho called, I am not kidding, Shittim. It's right outside the city. Imagine the school mascot. The cheerleaders hate the brown. You know, whatever. There's a reason nobody wants to live in Shittim. So... The two spies hang out there, they check out Jericho, and then they decide they're going to go into Jericho. So they go into Jericho. When they're in Jericho, there's like, there's Israelite spies in our city. So they're looking for everywhere to find these Israelite spies. They go to Rahab's house to hide. Rahab is a prostitute. She has a house of prostitution. So they knock on her door. Are there strange men in your house? She's like, what's my job? There's always strange men in my house. What are you talking about, right? And she, no, the Israelites. And they go, Oh, she goes, no, there's no Israelites here. And eventually what happens is the city of Jericho is given over to God's people. She, Rahab, is converted to follow the God of Israel, and she becomes the great-great-grandma of King David. And the best thing she's known for in the Bible is being a really good liar. The prostitute, whorehouse-running liar saves the day. And it goes to show, just like Judah, it's not how you begin, but how you end that matters. God can redeem our past. Rahab ends up being a story of God's grace. Matthew 1.5. So I'm the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. Ruth, godly or not? Godly, godly, very godly young lady. Ruth is an epic love story in the scriptures. We're going to teach through it next year after summer. It's going to be great and a lot of fun. Now, Ruth is a Moabite. Who are the Moabites? They're an entire race that was the product of incest. The way this works is you have Abraham's nephew, Lot. He is fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah as everything's being destroyed. And his daughters think this is going to be the end of the world because they were reading too many left-behind books. And, and Lot goes and says, we're going to live in a cave. And so they're living in this cave, and the daughters want kids. So they hatch a plan. We're going to get our dad drunk, and we're going to have sex with him so we can have children. And you're thinking, there has to be a plan B, right? That cannot be your plan A. Apparently it was, okay? And got to be pretty drunk or pretty sick or both. But, and you got to understand, when you read things like this in the scriptures, God is not condoning this. Okay, people go, oh, it's in the Bible. God must condone it. There's lots of things in the Bible that God doesn't condone. But it's in there so you see man's sin and what God is going to do to rescue and redeem us. So in this, uh, the Israelites don't want anything to do with the Moabites. They're all inbred hillbillies. They're all marrying their cousins. And ah, out of this people come Ruth. Now, Ruth starts off like this. you got a dad from a believing family, and he moves down to the land of the Moabites. His sons marry Moabite women. Two of them. One, one is named Orpah. All kinds of Oprah jokes there, but we're not going to tell them. And secondly, there's a young woman named Ruth. Now, eventually, the father and the sons die. And Naomi, the wife, says, 
I got to get out of Dodge. I'm going to just go back to God's people. That's what I'm going to do. And so she says to her daughters-in-law, I can't stay here. I got to go back. So you should go back to your people. Orpah says, bye. And Ruth says, no, I love you. I've come to love your God. I'm going to love your people. I'm going to go with you to your people. Ruth gets converted. She will actually use the covenant name of God. She will use Yahweh in the scriptures. And she goes back to Israel to provide for her bitter mother-in-law. She will pull into town. She starts to work in this field that's owned by a guy named Boaz. Now, Boaz was a, was a landowner, and landowners at that time were supposed to leave what are called gleanings in the field. So if there was somebody who was poor and they wanted to eat, they would go to your field. They would get the gleanings. They had to work for it. It wasn't a handout, but they could actually eat. So while Ruth is working in this field, getting gleanings for her mother-in-law, Boaz sees her. And he sees her integrity and how she loved her mother-in-law and how she loved Israel's God. She had, Ruth has no obligation to this people, but she's working hard for them. And he falls in love with her, and he marries her. Ruth from the inbred Hicks becomes one of the godliest women in the Bible. And she has a book of the Bible named after her, and she is King David's great-grandma. See what happens when you follow God? Lies become redeemed. Matthew 1.6, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That is a very harsh way of saying and reminding people of Bathsheba. Bathsheba was a beautiful woman married to a guy named Uriah, who was a Hittite. He's an upstanding guy. The story goes like this. The Israelite army is off fighting. David, the king, is supposed to be with them, but he doesn't. He stays back home in his, in his castle, fat and happy and bored, which you should learn a lesson from that. Don't let that be you. And Bathsheba is out on her rooftop. She's taking a bath because baths were usually on the roofs because it didn't have modern plumbing. She's probably doing something very spiritual, like cleansing herself after her period. And David, King David, is the creepy peeping Tom who was watching her do the entire thing. He's like, oh, yeah. Woo! Right? So he's watching her. Then after she's done, he sends someone to go get her so she can, he can give her a tour of the castle. And after they tour the castle, she, he then shows her around the castle, if you know what I mean. Okay? David commits adultery with Bathsheba while Uriah is out fighting to keep David safe. She eventually goes home, and she then will inform David, I'm pregnant. And David's like, oh no, what do I do? So he brings Uriah back from the front lines, and he says, I'm gonna, he gets them all liquored up and says, now go home and sleep with your wife so he can pawn the kid off on Uriah and say, oh great, you had a baby, how wonderful is that? That's what he wants to do. But Uriah says, no, I'm not gonna do that. All my guys are out fighting, and I am not gonna do something they can't do. So he refused to go home. So David is going to cover up her sin by another sin. He sends Uriah back to the front lines, and he says, go to a really heavy spot of battle. You'll charge, and everybody retreat, but don't tell Uriah. It's like, charge! Uriah's all, yeah! And everybody's all, boom! The guy dies. David murders Uriah. His plan's successful, and eventually Bathsheba, the adulteress, becomes the wife of David and the mother of Solomon. There's four stories out of Jesus' family line. Let me give you a fifth one. I know I said four. I'm a liar. Matthew 1.16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Now, again, he can't say Joseph is the father of Jesus because he wasn't. But the lineage here goes a certain way. And you'll see who God used throughout history to bring about this lineage. Now, Mary, godly or ungodly? 
godly, godly, very godly teenage virgin girl from a rural town. She is engaged. And if you wanted to get unengaged during this time, it could take upwards of a year or more. It'd be like getting a divorce. So she's engaged to this carpenter named Joseph. An angel shows up and speaks to her and says, you're going to give birth to Jesus. She goes and tells Joseph, I'm pregnant. And we look back and we think, oh, this is amazing. This is Christmas. How wonderful. Look at this from Joseph's angle. Okay? He probably loves this girl. He might have pursued her. He just, he's, all this time, he's waited and waited. In this culture, he most likely hadn't even kissed her yet. But he gave her a ring and he's got a date and they're going to get married. And she comes and says, I'm pregnant. What's your response? What in the world? How could she? She seems so godly. Legally, according to Jewish law here, Joseph could have her killed. How does Joseph respond? Matthew 1.19, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and, and unwilling to put her to shame, doesn't even want to publicly disgrace her, resolved to divorce her quietly. He is saddened. He's probably a little bit embarrassed. He doesn't want to hurt her. And Mary's probably like, no, no, honey, it's, it's okay. We can still get married. I'm a virgin. And Joseph's probably like, there's a baby in your belly. Did nobody explain to you the birds and the bees? Because it doesn't work like that. You know, baby, yeah. It's, no? Are you like, oh, no, I totally believe it. You're full of crap. You wouldn't believe it. Oh, my, you'd be like, what is wrong with this girl? How does this actually happen? No. Joseph, Isaiah seven fourteen. the virgin will be with the child. That's me. Ta-da. <laughs> You wouldn't believe it. I don't know if any girls in high school still try that with their parents. No, Mom, it's I'm Isaiah 714. Just me. You shouldn't believe it, okay? You shouldn't. Oh, my goodness. So, so Joseph is like, I, he, he doesn't really believe it. It's a hard sell. So an angel appears to Joseph and says, no, Joseph, really, this is from the Holy Spirit. Mary is still a virgin. This child is the Savior that is to be born of the fulfillment of Isaiah. So Joseph obeys God. He marries Mary. He doesn't sleep with her until the child is born. I know some religious traditions say that Joseph never slept with Mary. Come on. Seriously? He has been through so much. Give the guy a break here. So, if you, you should get married as a virgin. I believe that. But if it's your 20-year anniversary and you still haven't done it, you need some help. We have counseling. Come and talk to us. We will help you out in this, all right? Okay. Okay. So, we know Jesus has brothers. There's even a book in the Bible named after one of them. So there you go. Joseph becomes the adoptive father who raises Jesus. Now, think about this. They live in a small town. Do small towns gossip? Yes, small towns got San Maria gossips, and we're not even a small town anymore. They gossip. The town did not get a visit from an angel. Only Joseph got the, the visitation from the angel. So Mary becomes the town harlot, and Joseph becomes the idiot who believed and married her. Today, we see Mary as this godly woman. In that day, she's seen as a Tamar. That's how she's seen, which means Mary and Joseph have to trust God's promises their entire lives. And I'm sure it wasn't easy at times. And you know people felt like this because this accusation follows Jesus throughout his life. In John 8, 19, the religious leaders, it says, They said to him, therefore, where is your father? This is a not-so-kind way of saying, hey, we know who our dad is. Where is yours? It's not very subtle. In John 8, 8, 41, it says, They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. 
It's like your mother is a slut and your dad is the dummy who married her. This follows Jesus his entire life. Eventually, Jesus does defend his mom and he responds with, I know who your father is. It's the devil. So it's great, right? It's, you can use that one. So why do I think this what in the world is important, especially before Christmas, to look at Joseph's lineage and Jesus' family? Because you may think and look at your family and life and think it's too messed up for the gospel of Jesus Christ to penetrate. I will tell you, God comes to earth and he gets to pick which family he wants to be a part of. And he chooses this family. Guys, we don't get to choose our families. My mom, she was born in Missouri. There's not a lot of people left because they leave. The people that do, it like floods and your refrigerator ends up in a tree. And they stay. I have no idea why you don't get in a car and just drive away from there. I, that's what I would do. A weird family. I got this cousin. His name is Dutch. He's like a midget demon. He's a total weirdo. Last time we went to visit, I showed up to his trailer. And he's got his baby duct taped to a high chair. And he is eyeballing my wife. And I'm thinking, this is not how families are supposed to work. You can probably ask my mom tons of Missouri stories. She'll tell you all the time. Anyway, maybe you decide, I'm going to go to Ancestry.com and I'm going to look at my family history and see how great this is. And you run into some woman whose grandfather and father are both named Henry. And you're like, what's up with that? And your family's like, don't ask. (laughs) Your family tree doesn't fork. It's just like one big branch or something. You're like, I don't know. We don't get to choose our family. Not that I would, not that I would, but God got to choose his family. He could have been a priest kid. He could have been a rabbi's son. He could have been somebody influential's son, but he chooses to come through this messed up family. What in the world? I think Matthew starts his genealogy the way that he does, this gospel account the way that he does, to show that all men have sinned, and we all hide sin with others and to try and cover up ourselves. The Jews always thought they had better standing with God because of their pedigree, because of their affiliation, because of their race. And Matthew says, the Canaanite woman who you hate, the Moabite woman, had a better relationship with God because they loved and they worshipped him. Matthew says, I'm from the same people that you are, and this is who we are. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet, the prostitute follows God, and she is saved. And the Moabite has a book of scripture named after her. And I am Matthew, who am a traitor to the country because I'm a tax collector. I, Matthew, am a disciple of Jesus. And I think if we today took our race or pedigree or money or friends and threw it at Jesus' lineage, it would not look any better. I know mine wouldn't. (laughs) We are all former thieves and extortionists. The key for us is not to be filled with self-righteousness, but look to the level ground we all stand on before the cross. We are all the same before Jesus. We are bad and he is good. Jesus is born. He lives a life without sin. And he dies on a cross for us. And upon that death, all the sins of us and all the people in the world are placed upon him. He died to pay the penalty for our sin. Then he resurrects from the grave. And his resurrection is the defeat of sin and death. And what Matthew, the extortionist, thief, turned apostle, is telling us that in God's family, there is room for everybody by grace. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. When God becomes a man, he becomes a man complete with an insane family like yours and like like mine. He has brothers that don't believe, refuse to believe. He endures insults to his mom his entire life. 
And that's the beauty of Jesus. We are told that when Jesus comes, he'll be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he's more with us than we could ever imagine. And at Christmas, we're reminded that we get to embrace Jesus. We get to become part of his heavenly family. Thomas Merton once wrote, A saint is not someone who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God. That's what a saint is. Someone who is saved by Jesus. And he invites us into his family. And if you want a what in the world question, that's a what in the world. What in the world? God invites us into his family? Yes, he does. He does. That is the beauty of hope and grace and redemption. That is the beauty of what Christmas starts and what Easter fulfills and what eternity is going to bring about. That our God rescues people. That our God doesn't see your sin or your messed up family as too big a hurdle for him. He comes and he rescues and draws us back together again. This is why we talk about communion every week. You take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. reminds us of blood that was shed for you and me. Because he is the one who took care of all that stood between us and him and us and each other. He takes care of it himself. He adopts us into his family. We have all the rights of children of God because our God adopts us. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is the beauty of Christmas. That we get to be a people who all are brothers and sisters. So we just start treating each other like it. We start living in such a way that we see people outside these walls as also being invited in by you. You get to go out. You get to tell people the great adoption that you have received. You get to tell everybody else the the glorious wonder of our God becoming a man in Jesus Christ with a crazy family and saying, you're invited into. You're invited into. We should always be living on a mission. Christmas is about mission. Christmas is about us looking out and inviting in. Because our God came and invited us in to his family. The band's going to come up, as they do. We invite us to take communion to be some deacons in the back. And if you are, have a crazy messed up family, it's Christmas, and you're like, I've got to spend time with them, what am I going to do? Actually, next year, I already have this planned out, the, the whole four weeks going into Christmas next year, we're going to talk about different crazy types of families. It's going to be so much fun. I'll probably use mine as examples every week. We're going to talk about that. Guys, it is important for us to understand this. And if you, if you, again, have a messed up family, it's Christmas, you don't know what to do, they would love to pray with you. If you would like to know who Jesus is, if you've never surrendered your life to him, they'd love to pray with you about that. There's no better time than today. If it's not today, there's no better time than tomorrow. Don't wait. Follow him. Adopt him in his family. Understand the life and the grace that he gives and he brings. Because our God is good. There are offering boxes on the side and on the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship, so you have the opportunity. Every week we don't pass a plate. We give because we understand how much God gave to us. And there's food and stuff in the back. Grab some to eat. If you're not in the gospel community, we still invite you to you know, take the sermon notes and the questions and walk through those with some of your friends. Maybe ask each other, what's the craziest thing in your family? And then don't judge them for it. Because... There's probably lots of things you don't know about your family. Right? It's just like, they just don't talk about it. Uh, so maybe start talking to some of that stuff. And then, and then talk more about the understanding of how we also have been invited into God's family. 
that he has rescued and redeemed and brought us home. It doesn't matter what has been done in your past and in your life. It matters what God is going to do in your future, in your present, in your everyday as he grows and makes you more to the likeness of his son. Because we are a people who get to live in God's family, being adopted in by grace as full children. So let's go and invite everybody else to be invited into that same family as well. Okay? It's Christmas. Tough crowd. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us what it means to live on mission in your name, especially understanding that Christmas is you coming to rescue and redeem That Christmas is you stepping into a crazy family just like ours. And yet bringing hope and redemption there. And just like you brought it to your own family, you bring it to the entire world. And Father, today for those of us in this room who believe and who trust you, I ask that we would see the great privilege that it is to go out and speak of you and speak of your adoption, and speak of your hope, and speak of the grace that you have given to us. That we'd find so much joy in being part of your family, that it would be infectious to everybody around us. Father, for those, of us in, for those people in this room today that, that don't know who you are, I ask that you would place within them a calling, that you would draw them to you, that you would remind them of your great love and grace. And that all the things that we think we keep searching for are all found in you. Christmas is a tough time, God, and I ask that you would bring us out of our sadness, if we're living in that, bring us to a place of joy and hope, that everything and all of our burdens will be laid down before you. And we would live in the great grace of knowing you as your children. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.